Thanks, Corey and Cole and Tiffany. By the way, these two gentlemen of ours, we lay claim to them now, um, were in an honors concert at the university on Friday evening in uh, second and third place. So congratulations, guys. And and, uh, they got some scholarship dough out of that, so that's all right, too. We are very pleased that they're part of our worship experience. Join me in prayer. Father, we thank you today for the opportunity to again open your word. We pray that as we do this, Lord, you will find us faithful to not just hear it, uh, but to actually listen to it and to be people who are responsive to it as you lead us by your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You probably know the story of Goldilocks and the Three Bears, one of those Bedtime stories that we read to our children, not realizing sometimes the potential messages they could get that we maybe don't want them to take away. We know all about Goldilocks, her breaking and entering into the bear's house, why she was never arrested and carted off to prison for breaking and entering as a part of the story I do not understand. But nonetheless, she goes around the house because once you've broken into somebody else's house, why not just go around and mess with everything that's there? So she tries the chairs, one's too big, one's too small, one's just right. She eventually wakes, makes her way to the bedrooms and she finds the beds there, one's too hard, one's too soft, and one's just right. Meanwhile, where are the police? And then she has uh, made a part of her journey in breaking and entering. She gets to the kitchen. Of course, the, the meal has been prepared there and is ready. And there's, there's bowls of porridge, a.k.a. oatmeal. And one's too hot and one's too cold and one is just right. And so, of course, she consumes the entirety of the bowl that's just right, having sampled the other two bowls in probably a very unsanitary fashion, just dipping her spoon in. I mean, what does she care She's all about this not-too-hot, not-too-cold, just-right kind of thing. And you know what? Just-right may be great for oatmeal or porridge, but it's really not exactly appropriate to our relationship with Jesus Christ. But sometimes, you and I, at least I know I do, fall into this kind of Goldilocks mindset. And the last church that we're going to look at in the book of Revelation chapter 3 this morning is kind of there. And we're going to hear what Jesus today, we're going to hear what he has to say about that. Because basically, folks, we shouldn't follow this Goldilocks model. We need to ditch the approach to the Christian life as if we're testing oatmeal or somebody else's property. So here, Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22, I'm going to read. Uh, This morning, if you're watching on our website, just go to the right of the picture. There's a translation, Bible translation opportunity for you there to follow along. Of course, at home, you can follow along in your own Bibles. Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear, 
so that you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, if at the end of this seven-church journey in Asia Minor, I was to give you a final exam this morning, I'm absolutely confident that you could by now unpack this pattern that Jesus uses with each of these seven churches, right? The pattern is some information about himself, some good things, uh, generally speaking, some good things to emulate in each of these specific, uh, particular churches. But note, however, today, this church, Laodicea, there's nothing to commend about this church. If you were taking notes and you had this pattern outlined in your notes, for Laodicea, you would write in all capital letters, nothing. And then the last thing, of course, in the pattern are some bad things to avoid and and reasons why those things should be avoided. So as we have done for the last several weeks, the first thing we're going to do is learn a little bit more about Jesus. Verse 14. He's called the Amen, the faithful and true witness. Amen. This is an ancient Hebrew word that was transliterated along the way into other languages, including the, the Greek of the New Testament, including our own English language. Amen. Hebrew, it means let it be so. Done deal. This is what's going to happen. And so in this context, what, what Jesus is underscoring for us is what the Apostle Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. He says this, For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. We say amen. We say, yes, Lord, let it be so, because God has said, let it be so. And in Jesus, it is so. Promises, so many fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus. Pastor Laura and I, the other night, we watched the movie WW84, Wonder Woman 1984. I'm really, 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 really glad we didn't pay go-in-person movie theater prices to see this particular movie. Because, spoiler alert, it stinks. It's the story of people being granted all their wishes by a guy who cannot control himself. And, of course, people being granted random wishes, they can't control the outcomes of all those wishes. And so, at the, as we move towards the end of the movie, the result is absolute chaos. But Jesus, not like this. Jesus doesn't indiscriminately grant wishes. And sometimes, I know in my prayer life, I'm not really earnestly seeking God's purposes and will. I'm sending up my wish list. Lord, here it is. And oh, by the way, in attachment one, you will find out the exact ways I want you to fulfill my wishes. That's not what Jesus does. Jesus fulfills promises. This is a book on the shelf in the church library. The Bible promise book. 1,000 promises from God's word. And what the Apostle Paul says, and what Jesus himself reinforces here in this passage when he says, Amen, is that he is the guarantor of these promises. Promises of God's love, like in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. 
Or in Jeremiah 31.3, the Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I have loved you with an, get the word, everlasting love. I have drawn you with loving kindness. Or maybe in times of turmoil, like, hey, the year 2020, maybe the promises of peace would speak to us and resonate with us better, even as we're coming out of 2020, into 2021, where, where all the experts are saying, yeah, we don't know. We're not sure about how things are going to get back to where we want them to be. We're not really sure things are looking better. Things are making more promise. We're seeing more promising evidence and whatever. But perhaps for you, like for me, sometimes I'm desperately in need of this peace, which God has promised to us in his word. Peace, peace to those far and near, says the Lord, and I will heal them, Isaiah chapter 57. Colossians chapter 3, verse 15, one of the verses that Pastor Laura read for us. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. Philippians chapter 4, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. All of God's promises, all of them, all thousand and more of them, are fulfilled and come to fruition in the Amen, the faithful and true witness of Jesus who went to the cross for my sin and for your sin, who was resurrected on the third day. I know I'm getting a little ahead of myself with the whole Lent and Good Friday and Easter Sunday thing, but nonetheless, that's the guarantee of the promises, the person and work of Jesus. Amen. Uh, Pastor Laura and I watched a documentary on the black church uh, over the past couple of days. It's on PBS. If you want to watch it, I encourage you to watch it. But one of the things I love about African-American worship is it is not quiet. There's no silence in the room. Like there usually is here. It is boisterous. It is Active And when, when the preacher says something that deserves an amen, guess what happens? The people actually say, amen. Jesus is the amen. Jesus is the underscored, underlined, highlighted, bold printed. He is the one that fulfills the promises of God. And he is also, he is also in this passage described as the ruler of God's creation. This phrase, this word, these words actually have to do with origins. And they remind us in the way that the Apostle, uh, Apostle John did in John chapter 1 that Jesus was, was the instrument, the, the, the moving power behind the creation of the universe. He's the active agent of creation, and he is in charge. From time to time, you may have watched that television show, The Undercover Boss Show, you know, where the boss disguises him or herself in some way and shows up at some frontline operation and tries to plug in and do things and see what's going on. He's undercover. Jesus doesn't make hidden inspections. He's not undercover. He is always here with us and make no mistake about it, he is the boss. He's the ruler of God's creation, and he is always here with us. And then as the passage moves on, it really demonstrates the whole problem with the not too hot, not too cold, just lukewarm kind of oatmeal porridge approach to life. The problem with the porridge in verses 15 and 16. These folks in this church in Laodicea, they are neither hot nor cold. They have zero passion. Jesus says, man, be one or the other. Now, a note, 
This hot and cold here is not uh, our contemporary cultural understanding of hot and cold. Hot being really passionate and cold being indifferent. For this church in Laodicea, in ancient times, the water for this church, the water for this city, came six miles via aqueduct. It came from boiling hot springs. But by the time it got to Laodicea, it was lukewarm. For all the wealth of the people in this church and the people in this city, these people, they had bad water. And what Jesus is trying to say here is, in this cultural context, be hot or be cold. Think about it this way. When I want a cold, refreshing drink, I drink iced tea. I love it. And when I want a hot drink, which I don't really want very often, but when I want a hot drink, it's a hot cocoa overflowing with marshmallows. Cold, refreshing, hot, warm, and comforting. This is the way that Jesus is describing what he's looking for from his church and from the people who who, uh, populate his church. Demonstrating passion, being uh, cold and refreshing to people, or being warm and comforting people. Being people who have seen and embraced our passion for God's purpose in our lives. But these folks, mm -mm, nope, mm mm-mm. And here's another thing to me that I see interesting about this church and these people at that time. And this might seem a little weird, but these people, Jesus points out, these people, they weren't in trouble with anybody. You know, as a parent and as a grandparent, although less with the grandkids than I did with my own kids, I told my kids, try to stay out of trouble. My grandkids, I'm amused when they get in trouble and I have to watch their parents deal with it. It's a little different. But, right, stay out of trouble. And all these other churches we looked at so far on this trip through the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, all these other churches had endured difficulty because they had been vocal for Jesus. But not Laodicea. No. Now, I'm not talking about getting in trouble for trouble's sake. But trouble and trials that often come with standing firm for Jesus. If no one ever challenges the worldview we bring to the table, maybe it's because we ain't bringing it to the table. Jesus wants us to bring it. And there will be times when, if we stand firm in our understanding of our worldview, firm in our understanding that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, that's going to just tick some people off. And we might get in trouble for that. That's the right kind of trouble. Laodicea, none of that. No commendation here for enduring, persevering, and and enduring times of difficulty or trouble. No, they weren't in trouble at all because they weren't really standing clearly for Jesus. And because of these things, there are clear consequences for this church. He says, because they are lukewarm, he will spit them out of his mouth. The word spit really means vomit. I don't know if you've had this experience or not. I was in a Bible one study one time. It was in Germany. It was kind of crowded. We were all kind of sitting around on the floor. And uh, suddenly, in the middle of the, the, the Bible study leader's teaching, his exposition of the text, this cat wanders in. They were cat people. This cat wanders in to the middle of the room. And then the cat starts going, <coughs> hairball right there in the middle of the floor in the middle of the Bible study. As gross and disgusting as that picture is, 
This is exactly what Jesus thinks about this kind of Goldilocks approach to our Christian life. And where does this Goldilocks approach, where does this model come from? It comes in verse 17 from buying into the way the world thinks about things. Buying into the way the culture thinks about things. Not reflecting purposefully and biblically about what's going on around us. This church, the people in this church, they say they are wealthy and they need nothing. But Jesus says, uh 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 uh, no. You are really wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Rich. This church, in the year AD 60, the city of Laodicea, an earthquake struck. But they were so wealthy, they didn't need any outside help to rebuild the city. They refused offers of help that came from elsewhere. Just last week with the, the crushing cold in the, uh, Texas, the state of Texas was uh, the recipient of a federal disaster declaration for the damage they suffered from the loss of power and water last week. The federal government rushing in to, to do what it needs to do to help people get back on, the feet, on their feet. Laodicea, so rich, they didn't need that. He says also there... Blind. This is a, a, a bit of a play on the situation in Laodicea because this city had become famous for a special ointment, a special salve for treating eye problems. And so what Jesus is saying here is that you look at your resources, you think that they have made you what you are, that you are hot stuff, but what resources often do is tend to fuel the illusion of self-sufficiency. And worse than that illusion is this conclusion we can come to that, hey, I don't need God. Look, man, I am all that. I don't need God. What do I need God for? I got money. I got a job. I got a warm place to sleep. I got money in the bank. I got a nice car. I don't need God. I am all that and a bag of chips. Laodicea had financial resources. There was, a, there was a flourishing textile business. They were famous, as I said, for that healing eye ointment, which they exported around the ancient, ancient world. They thought those material things, that economic well-being, if you will, insulated them from their need for God. They thought those things negated their call to be an active witness for Jesus. I was listening to a podcast by a a guy named Alistair Begg this, this week, and he was talking about some stuff, and he had a line in there that really just hammered home to me the, what Jesus is saying to this church here. He said, often we think great things are about ourselves and small things about God. Man, talk about a whack up the side of the head. This presumption that wealth or status or privilege exempts us from a need to be fully invested in the purposes of Jesus. So, in the face of this problem that this church has, in the face of this Goldilocks approach or this oatmeal problem, what's Jesus' solution? He unpacks it in verses 18 through 20. He says, come on back to me for the resources to stir up a passion about him. Verse 18. He says, he uses a weird word here, I think. He uses this word by, B-Y, which is odd 
if you think about it, if you odd if you think about that, our transaction with Jesus is a grace transaction. He gives us what we need. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. We don't work for it. He gives us what we need. But what he's thinking about, what he's trying to get at is this, right? You, you can remember this if you ever were a child. You can remember this if you have kids. You can remember this if you have grandchildren, right? It, mom's birthday's coming up. The kids have no cash. What do they do? They go see dad. Dad, I want to get something for mom for her birthday. Dad hands over some cash. They go get something for mom for her birthday, and they give it to her as a present, as if they were the originator of that gift. They weren't. They were exercising received grace on behalf of the one that extended grace to them, and they bestowed that grace on somebody else. That's what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about us, you and me, being, being conduits, being, being uh, a transmission points, being power lines, if you will, of the grace that flows from God through us to other people. He says, we should be like gold refined in the fire. And if we're gold refined in the fire, then we really are rich. Now, these are nice words on the page, and they're nice to talk about, but really think about this. When gold is refined by a fire, it's hot in there. And the dross from the, from the, of the impurities, the other minerals, it falls away in the middle of the heat. These people, he's saying, Jesus is saying, be purified by the process of coming closer to me. We don't like this very much. I don't like this very much. But the truth of the matter is that sometimes our troubles, the problems that we face, are working in us and through us in exactly this way. It's a little hot in there. But on the other side is purity of expression of faith in Jesus. Let me give you an example. During the last year now, it's been a year. It seems like a really, really, really long bad week in March. But it's been a a year we've been dealing with COVID-19. But I will venture to say that we have learned more about the importance of congregational connection. We've learned more and more about the importance of personal interaction. We have learned more about the need to be in fellowship with each other during COVID than we would have if we had not experienced this pandemic. Now, I'm not a fan of the pandemic. Trust me, I'd be happy for the day when we don't have to do this anymore or do it in fewer places. But still, think about it. We've been purified in this process. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. He is, in verse 20, eager to rush to our rescue. This is perhaps one of the most famous verses in the entirety of the book of Revelation. It may be one of the most famous verses in the entirety of the Bible. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. In the original language of the New Testament, this verb to knock is in the present tense. And in the original language of the New Testament, the present tense means it's continuous, ongoing action. He is knocking and knocking and knocking and knocking and knocking and knocking and knocking to come in, just waiting for us to open the door, eager for him to fan the flame of passion for God's purposes in our lives. 
He will never barge his way in. He's not one of those no-knock warrant guys who takes the little battering ram and bursts the door down and the team of law enforcement folks rushes in. That's not him. But he's standing at the door, man. He is knocking. He wants to come in. He is waiting for us to open the door. That we might experience the fullness of his purposes. This letter, verse 21 closes then with a promise to those who do indeed overcome. He's going to give us a privilege of a really good seat at the table. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to a formal function of any kind. I've been to a few along the way when I was in the military. Um, And, you know, you dress up in your best uniform, everything in just the right spot. And you'd go. And my first experience of this when I was a second lieutenant in the United States Air Force at Francis E. Warren Air Force Base in Cheyenne, Wyoming, was that because of my rank and my position, I sat so far away from the head table, I could barely see who was there. Never mind, enjoy what in the world it was they were talking about. And they were up there, they were having a grand old time chuckling with each other and smacking, slapping each other on the back and telling stories and great and wonderful. And there came a moment later on when there was a formal speech and the, the officer, the senior officer, stood up to the podium to make this formal speech. And he's speaking into the microphone, but I was so far away I couldn't hear what he said. And then, of course, as you work your way up in rank, you get a little closer to the head table, so you have a better opportunity to see what's going on. You don't ever really quite make it to the head table. But you get close enough to say, you know, it'd be kind of nice to be at the head table. And Jesus here is saying, with me, come on, man, sit down, right next to me, on the throne. I don't know what the stones can look like. It must be pretty stinking big. But apparently we all get to sit right there with him. We get to share in all good things with him, Jesus, just as he shares in all good things with the Father. Psalm 108, verse 4. For great is his love, higher than the heavens. His faithfulness reaches to the skies. He's knocking just waiting for us to open the door and experience the fullness of his purposes in us and through us. Now I know we're still in basketball season. Pastor Laura has articulated several times very well, I think, that basketball is really just kind of a holding territory while we wait for baseball to get going. And I think she's right about that. There's this thing in March called March Madness. And for me, March Madness is an increasing sense of anger that baseball has not started yet. Back in two, two, uh, By the way, I want to mention this, and <clears throat> Becky, if you're watching, I'm, I'm sorry I'm going to share this, but um, we were had our community meal in the Central's Pantry giveaway um, uh, yesterday. And in a lull in the, mo- uh, the action, Becky asked me, she had uh, given me a pair of Kansas City Chiefs socks a while back. And so she asked me if on Super Bowl Sunday, I was wearing my socks for the Super Bowl. I said, well, Becky, the socks were in my house. 
She said, no, were you wearing them? I said, Becky, the socks were in my house. She said, well, I'm going to blame you. I said, you mean those people that are making millions of dollars every year to play the game, you're not going to blame them? You're going to blame me? She said, yeah, I'm going to blame you. All right. So in the spirit of that, I thought I'd mention another less than positive outcome for a Kansas City team. In the year 2014, the Royals were facing the San Francisco Giants in the World Series. And the the Giants won the series on a Wednesday night in a really close game that broke the hearts of Kansas City Royals fans. San Francisco pitcher Madison Bumgarner, man, you got to think middle school was tough for him. Madison Bumgarner, he won the series MVP award. Afterwards in San Francisco, we could understand the fans' passion. Uh, There was their third series win in five years. It was a game seven win. It was on the road. The the night before, they had been crushed by the Royals, 10 to nothing. So the passionate fans got boisterous. Then they got rowdy. Then they got dangerous. Two gunshot victims, one stabbing victim came out of that celebration. Passion, sometimes, gets grossly misapplied. And misdirected passion can lead to a heap of trouble, but when applied to the life with Christ, it means passionate living out of God's purposes in our lives, our personal lives and our our life together. But we're too scared of being over the top. We've been cowed by the world into thinking that ardent passion for Jesus is something only for Sunday morning, and just barely for that. I think God wants to raise up an army of folks with passionate purpose for him. I think God is looking for us to abandon the Goldilocks approach to life and join him in experiencing a life of purpose and passion. Cold and refreshing. Warm and comforting. Don't we think that's what the folks around us really, really, really want? Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word from the book of Revelation this morning to us. We thank you that Jesus was crystal clear about his desire to to have us answer the door and welcome him in and for us to experience a life of purpose and passion with him. Father, wherever we are in our journey today, make us receptive to that call to purpose and passion. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.